This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and Happy New Year. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Toronto's Pearson International Airport has been making headlines again for poor service. Many travelers have complained this past week that it's taken days for them to get their baggage after arrival at their destinations, and the communication of the status or whereabouts of their luggage has been poor. We heard midweek from Tory Gass at the Greater Toronto Airports Authority that the situation was improving and the luggage backlog was clearing. But that meant some travelers were still waiting for their bags. So even with the wintry weather, how did this happen? And what can travelers do about compensation for all of the inconvenience? While in for Libby on Wednesday, I got some answers from Dr. Carl Moore, airline industry analyst and professor at McGill University, and Martin Firestone, travel expert and president of Travel Secure, Inc. I actually do believe it. I think at the end of the day, we have a true perfect storm. We had frigid temps. We have snow, not only in Ontario, not in only in every province in Canada, but also the U.S. The whole thing just came together on the three busiest days of the year. So let's give them a little bit of benefit of the doubt and suggest that it did break down because of the problems. Will it ever happen again? I sure hope not. And they'll do something about it. But I believe it was weather related for the moment. Carl, what about you? No, I agree that it is weather-related. I also think that what it is is we have a system which was down 90% during COVID and took a while for it to, to come back. And there was considerable surprise around the world that they came back as fast as they did, in a lot of quarters at least. And so you had security people, you had baggage handlers, you had flight attendants and so on, where there was a shortage of people in the industry. And it took a while to retrain them. That's starting to kick in, but, you know, it takes a long time to train a pilot, but it still takes time to train security guards and flight attendants. And I think the whole system was just exhausted by the year it's been through. So I think that's a a second contributing factor after the weather. Wouldn't it make sense, though, Martin, to somehow ensure that people's bags are getting out of the airport and onto the plane before they take off? I mean, already flights are delayed. What's the big deal about waiting a little bit longer for people's luggage? As it turns out, waiting a little bit longer was not going to be the answer. If you said, how about waiting a few days? They, they, the sheer volume of all those bags could never find their ways onto the right plane for the mm-hmm. right person at the right time. Bottom line is, it, it, no, no amount of time would have helped this situation. It was doomed from the start. And unlike the summer when you just didn't have bags when you got back, this is having bags when you land at your resort. And it is a terrible situation to not have your clothes with you when you're, when you're on a seven-day trip. Dr. Moore, Carl, how unusual was this situation? It's still going on at Pearson Airport where bags are at the airport and people are at their travel destinations now for a matter of days. Well, worse than we've seen, but it's been a tough year. At Toronto and Montreal airports, we love being world-class in Canada, but we're the worst 
two airports in the world for part of this year because of things like this, delays and luggage and so on. So it's been an ongoing year of just difficulties in Canada's system. It's made worse by winter. It's made worse by the busiest travel time year of Christmas. So I think it's going to get better. Maybe this is optimistic, and, you, and, and if it doesn't, you call me out on it, I'm sure, Jane. But in January, it should get better as schools get back in. My wife's a grade five teacher. Families are back. The amount of travel decline, and I think the new employees will kick in, and the sense of exhaustion in the system will be a bit less. So I'm optimistic that from January 10th on, things should be looking a bit more civilized than they have been for the, a good part of the year. Looking forward to uh, 2023, uh, what do you think is going to play out uh, now that we've been through the worst of the pandemic and this, this incident where everything went wrong at the same time? Carl, you go ahead first. Well, I think it's going to get a bit better in January and February, as I mentioned earlier. We'll probably not get back, never get back to where it was in the, you know, in the heyday when the times were great. But I think we'll see an improvement and the, the government's uh, tighten rules. The airlines recognize this is hurting them. And I think things will gradually improve, but at a slow rate. And uh, we may have seen, you know, the golden years a couple of years ago, unfortunately. Marty, your final thoughts? Sadly, I agree. And the problem is, is that we just have our expectations after COVID. We thought the world was going to be perfect again, anything but that, because weather was the problem, as we always thought it may be, but never imagined it would be on the three busiest days of the year. Martin Firestone, travel expert and president of Travel Secure Inc., and Dr. Carl Moore, airline industry analyst and professor at McGill University. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Buffalo is just a 90-minute drive from Toronto, but what a difference the people of that city experienced last Friday and Saturday, the two days before Christmas, versus what we dealt with here in Toronto. Some neighborhoods in Toronto got about two centimeters of snow. In Buffalo, they received 1.8 meters of snow in blizzard conditions. And dozens of people died in this historic storm. Dr. Natalie Simpson is chair and professor of operations management and strategy at the University of Buffalo and an expert on emergency preparedness. On Wednesday, I asked her what went wrong and why wasn't the city of Buffalo better prepared? Or can you even prepare for a once in a lifetime type of storm? The real question is, where is that going to fall? Because, you know, our lake bands tend to form up uh, so intensely over a certain area that it is very difficult to pinpoint precisely where it's going to fall. And wobbling by just a few miles can place a lake band over a densely populated area or not completely spare it and, um, you know, fall to the suburbs in our south. And so that's not the type of thing that we can say for certain, although they were warning uh, in advance that um, Buffalo was definitely in the sort of the, the cone of probability. So it's not a surprise. So what would be your best advice in a scenario like what has just happened? I mean, if you're already outside, um, presumably the best advice is don't go outside when you're about to get a blizzard. But if you're in your vehicle, do you stay in your vehicle? Is that is that the better course of action? Yes, unless you can see better shelter and you can see a way to get there, 
right? Because it's important if, if there's like a chain link fence or something, right, between you and the shelter, then uh, that doesn't count. You should stay with your vehicle. Well, I have a thinking feeling that these type of overpowered weather events aren't going to be once in a lifetime. Yeah, not anymore, anymore, right? Not anymore. So I think that we should <laughs> we, we should start adapting and learning to do our best during them. I don't know that we're going to find out that there was any certain thing that could have been done, only perhaps be in mobilizing more equipment to head towards the affected areas sooner. But I'm not saying that that was a problem. I'm only saying that it looks like it's the only, in hindsight, criticism you might. There is some interesting issues that I hope we all look at them as lessons to learn ahead about the idea of driving bans and how soon you should announce them. Mm -hmm. Uh, That might might have made a difference, right? There's a lot of pressure to not announce a driving ban, and so you're absolutely sure that a driving ban is going to be needed because the driving ban is economically devastating for the community. You do not do that lightly. You, mm-hmm. you issue advisories like, no, really, seriously, you don't want to. But that said, I think that we're learning now employers don't, for the most part, respond as dramatically to advisories as they do bans. And so at least some people could have not been out because they were at their jobs if there had been a ban announced earlier. There's something else here, though, that we should note as we're reflecting on this tragedy uh, versus the storm in November. Is here's another important difference, and it's something that we can all like learn from because all, all of us everywhere uh, should be aware of this. The storm in November did not involve two to three days' worth of whiteout. There's two ways that a snowstorm, right, threatens us. One is with the actual snow and stopping all ground traffic. But two, a snowstorm may or may not involve a lot of whiteout. You know, and we had hurricane-force winds in Buffalo. Yeah. And so it was that absolute loss of visibility that looks like right now the majority of deaths are people that were found outside. They were probably stranded and were trying to get somewhere, right? That's how a blizzard becomes deadly is nobody can see. Now the weather warms up over the next week. What needs to happen now? Oh, curb to curb uh, clearing of all of that snow. Yeah. Which another reason why, even though people are going absolutely stir-crazy, please stay off the streets if you can, because logistically that's a big deal. But in order to mitigate flooding, we, we now need to go from having carved one skinny little lane down snowbound streets to actually clearing curb to curb. That's a key. Dr. Natalie Simpson, Chair and Professor of Operations Management and Strategy at the University of Buffalo and an expert on emergency preparedness. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, six years after Vision Zero was launched in Toronto, the program may be having a positive effect on pedestrian safety. We discuss next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
So is Vision Zero actually starting to work? This is the question we asked at the end of 2022, as last year saw the lowest traffic deaths in more than 10 years, with the exception of 2020, when we were all locked down during the pandemic. The numbers are actually nothing to celebrate, with 50 people having died on Toronto streets during last year, including 22 pedestrians and one cyclist. But when Vision Zero was launched in 2016, there were 78 traffic deaths, including 44 pedestrians and one cyclist. Our tune into the town panel weighed in on Vision Zero to date, as well as how Mayor John Tory has conducted business since he won re-election October 24th and now has strong mayor powers. David Crombie is a former Toronto mayor, and Anna Bailau is a former Toronto city councillor and former deputy mayor of Toronto. While filling in for Libby, I started by asking Anna Bailau how much of an impact the Vision Zero measures have had on bringing down the numbers. I think it's clear that it has some impact. I think that there's been a variety of actions that have been taken from red light cameras to street designs to lowering of speeds. So it's many initiatives that make up the Vision Zero. And like you said, it's not there yet. Of course, one one death is one too many, but I think it's definitely heading in the right direction. We live in a busy city. Uh, we have cars, we have trucks, we have cyclists, we have pedestrians. And it's this mentality that uh, many years ago, uh, when I started in council, was like, oh, there's a war on car. And it has to stop. We need to find ways for people to, to walk, for people to cycle, for people to drive in a safe way. And that's the goal of Vision Zero is to make it safe for pedestrians, which are the most vulnerable people out there. And it's just good planning as well for the city, right? When you right. have more pedestrians, it makes it safer, more enjoyable, better for small business. So it has a lot of positives. So the city has spent, uh, since 2016, nearly $270 million in the program, including $64 million in this year alone. Uh, are you in a position where you can recap some of the initiatives uh, that have been part of the program to try to make the streets safer, Anna? We've spent absolutely a lot of that money. But, for example, I know that uh, just on the speed cameras that we've been able to put on our on our streets, it's been millions and millions of dollars as well that we've collected. Uh, obviously, the goal is not to collect that money. The goal is for people to not to speed. But uh, a lot of, of, of money has been recuperated with tickets through red light cameras and speed cameras and so on. So there's been uh, uh, those initiatives that bring in um, money and there's other in- initiatives like street redesigns to make, you know, crossings on intersections more pedestrian friendly to make sure that everybody has good visibility, that cars and pedestrians and cyclists have good visibility. There was a lot of those redesigns and some- sometimes difficult conversations because sometimes, you know, change in neighborhoods are sometimes difficult. And so these are uh, often very controversial in certain neighborhoods. We're talking about um, a myriad of initiatives ranging from automated speed enforcement cameras, separated bike lanes, more than 1,000 new advanced walk signals for pedestrians. The program has also allowed the city to implement a host of so-called traffic calming initiatives like speed bumps, raised crosswalks, and in-road signage warning drivers to slow down. I mean, 
it just stands to reason, Anna, that this will have a positive effect on keeping people alive should they even get hit by a vehicle. Some of these things are such small changes. So, for example, the advanced timing for pedestrians. You know, the amount of pedestrians that would start uh, crossing at the same time that somebody's making a right turn and the driver would not see them. So just by giving a few seconds so that pedestrian has the opportunity to initiate that crossing and so it, it becomes much more visible to the driver, it has had a huge impact. Pedestrians feel safer, it's more visible. So these are all, you know, there's there's the, the bigger actions, but there's actions that, you know, by changing those timers alone, you have a bigger, uh, 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 such a great uh, impact on, on, on the safety in our city. So um, it's, I, I agree with, with David. I think, I think um, it, it was, it's not cheap, but I think it's a good, good investment that the city made. David, as a former mayor of Toronto and now an outsider looking in, what is your impression of Toronto's Vision Zero strategy? Uh, yeah, a couple of things. One, I think Anna's really placed it well. We very often, are, obviously, are critical of the of the council when it does not do the right thing. But in this one, it's the, the program design, I guess now five, six years ago, was it worked out to be just a terrific design. It does cost money, but it's very, very complicated. And so I think there's congratulations in order for those who've actually done the work on the council uh, at City Hall and those in the council supported it. I wish I heard more from the mayor on the uh, the province's destruction of the green belt. I'd like to hear more from the mayor on the province's hollowing out of the conservation authority. These are important matters for the city. Uh, and certainly, I think, uh, unfortunately, he stumbled very badly on deep-sixing the idea that majority rules on council. I think this was an attempt to do something in a very messy way. <laughs> Let me put it this way. I think that... Um, there's a lot of other municipalities that, um, for example, I know that in London, England, the, the mayor has the authority uh, on, on certain planning issues that are of city significance to uh, basically remove that from, from council and have the power to move on certain, certain on these issues. And I think that was the intent where the province wanted to go, but um, I think this was not done with consultation, with clear conversations, and that was the result of this. So if there is going to be a review, now is up in the air or not. But I, I think that's the problem with these things that have been happening with governance issues. I think we all agree that governance for the largest city of Toronto needs to be looked at. We all definitely agree that the, the financial tools of the situation need to be looked at, that there's a deep conversation that needs to happen about uh, the relationship and how we govern this city and how we can be a competitive fourth largest city in North America. But it's being done at piecemeal and in a very obscure way without proper conversations with Torontonians, with council, and and in an, in an open forum. Anna Bailau, former Toronto City Councillor and former Deputy Mayor of Toronto, and David Crombie is a former Toronto Mayor. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Our friend and consumer advocate Ellen Roseman joined Fight Back on Thursday to talk about consumer trends during 2022. What were we buying and why? What did we pull back on purchasing and why? What was in demand? 
and what outside influences well, affected our buying. With, uh, I asked Ellen where she wanted to start the conversation. Many uh, Canadians and Americans too. It's not uh, exclusive to us in Canada, but we've all been battered by weather and uh, problems with delays and cancellations and lost baggage, which seems to be a huge issue, judging by the news every night where you just see piles of bags sitting around and then getting stored in some place that nobody even knows where they are. Um, so people are starting to think, what's going on here? Well, it's definitely the return to travel, especially at uh, the holiday time where many people haven't seen their, their family uh, outside the city for many uh, years during the COVID uh, epidemic. And it's also the fact that airlines are deluged. They're not that efficient. They probably have had trouble calling up staff because a lot of staff were laid off for two years during the pandemic and didn't want to come back, kind of like the healthcare system. And uh, in Canada, we have something new called the Airline Passenger Protection Regulations, which came in under the Liberal government, were widely touted as a, you know, a, a solution to many of the problems we're having. But as we're now finding out, they're not that strong. The airlines themselves were involved in dictating a lot of the rules and making it hard for people to get their money back. You know, we waited a couple of years for the airlines just to give refunds for flights canceled because of COVID at the beginning of it all. And once that was done, now they're uh, making it difficult to get refunds for uh, flights that are delayed or canceled. And they're saying things like, well, you know, it was the weather. The weather is an exemption, so they don't have to give you a refund if the weather causes a cancellation. But they're often blaming it also on um, uh, other things, uh, like, you know, not having enough staff, which for most people, you would think that's their problem, not uh, the customer's problem. Right. If they can't staff it properly, they, they, they should be paying us the refunds. And too much is left in the airline's hands to tell the customer what went wrong and it should be simpler than that and there's no real enforcement there is the canadian transportation agency which got a lot of money to staff up and and do more enforcement of the rules but it turns out they are backlogged like crazy they haven't issued any fines against any airlines at all in the two years or so since the airline um, new airline rules were passed and they're very ineffective so we're all looking for changes and hoping that the government will shape up because Yes, definitely there's much more traffic than there was before, and it's harder for companies to cope. But on the other hand, um, they should have been expecting it, and they should at least have learned something from the previous you know, months where they've looked like pretty bad actors. And I suspect that tourism to Canada might be falling as well. During the pandemic, it was tough to find a used car. Has that situation slowly changed over 2022? Uh, not much. Uh, I heard that if you are driving a used car and you want to sell it, this is probably a good time to sell because it could fall again. Mm -hmm. But new cars are really backed up. There's a shortage of computer chips and materials that are needed. And people are complaining if they uh, buy a a new car, they have to wait at least three months, sometimes six months. And electric vehicles could be a year or more to get. So uh, used cars are in demand. And those used cars are uh, new cars. Uh, are eventually sold to car rental companies. But if you're going on a trip, it's really a bad idea to wait until, you know, a week before you leave to uh, put in a reservation for a rental car. Uh, you should be doing it, you know, several months ahead just to make sure you're going to get one. So it's still, uh, it's still a very, very tight market.
journalist and consumer advocate Ellen Roseman. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Jody in Thornhill phoned about how we've come to expect poor service in air travel. I'm just uh, listening to you folks talking, and it makes me so sad because you're saying expect substandard uh, service True. and accept it. Yes, right. and It's just so sad. Sita in Mississauga phoned with some ideas about improving pedestrian safety. Hi, everyone. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Um, the, city, the city are doing a great job for road safety, but people cannot depend on others for their own safety, especially in the winter. So why don't they, people start wearing more brighter colors instead of dark clothing? It is so difficult to see people. And winter coats, why don't they improve by stitching reflectors or something into their sleeves? Joy in Markham called with her thoughts on pedestrian safety. Hi there. Good afternoon. Um, my concern is um, cell phone users crossing the streets, and they are not um, checking their surroundings. And, uh, you know, they're looking down into their phones. And, you know, sometimes, you know, one has to honk their horn just to get their attention. So it takes both drivers and pedestrians. We have to look out for each other. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Craig in Etobicoke, who also called in during the segment on Vision Zero and pedestrian safety. Hey, Jane, great show. I just wanted to say uh, the point that was brought up about, you know, pedestrians have to take responsibility. I really appreciate that as an instructor. Uh, I think drivers are demonized too much, and uh, I'm glad that point was brought up because if you got good pedestrians and good drivers, you get good. If you have bad pedestrians and bad drivers, you get bad. So I appreciate the fact that you said pedestrians have to take responsibility. That's great. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. And call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.